This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. How do, how do? Welcome to the broadcast. Good to have you aboard, all my listeners, my friends, my extended radio family. Getting ready to bug out at uh, of, uh, 550 Queen Street East here in Toronto, the good. Just a few weeks hence, uh, we'll be moving down the uh, Queen Elizabeth, or down Lakeshore Boulevard, I guess, uh, the other, just west of here. Moving into our new digs, uh, the flagship station of our burgeoning little uh, network here on The Conspiracy Show, AM740, uh, is uh, pulling stakes and moving, as I say, down the road to a beautiful new facility. And I just uh, had the the, uh, the pleasure of doing a little tour. And uh, they're still, you know, uh, drywalling and uh, probably still are at this late hour, just trying to get things ready. Uh, but uh, I'm really excited about this new place. It just looks gorgeous. And uh, I have to say, though, I'm going to miss... I'm going to miss this place. A lot of character, this old building. Uh, listen, I hope you're uh, enjoying sort of the uh, the Easter season, shall I say. Uh, you know, always confusing for me. Uh, Orthodox Christian, there is sort of the uh, Protestant Catholic Easter. Of course, we're into the Easter season now. And then the Orthodox Easter actually is like a month hence, the end of April, which is about the latest it can be. And, uh, you know, so I get to benefit. Uh, well, what does it mean? I, it means that. Uh, Two lovely glazed hams for Buddy. That's what it means. <laughs> one now and one a little bit later. Uh, and, of course, you know, the kids enjoying the, uh, the Easter egg hunts. And uh, uh, how do I, you know, bring this all home? I guess the Easter egg hunt is all about uh, one type of rabbit. And in this program, we take you down a different rabbit hole. And we're going to do that tonight. We are getting set, of course, to commemorate the 45th, wow, 45th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, some would say state execution, and I think my first two guests tonight would concur with that. Uh, really uh, here to sort of disabuse us of the official version of events that transpired April 4th, 1968 at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, that's where we're going this first hour. Hope you'll be aboard for that. Let's welcome aboard William Francis Pepper, barrister in the United Kingdom, admitted to the bar in numerous jurisdictions in the United States of America, 
is primarily involved in international commercial law. He's represented governments in the Middle East, Africa, South America, Asia. Today, he represents Sirhan Sirhan, the gunman convicted, of course, in the assassination of Senator Robert F. Kennedy in June 1968. But he was a friend of Dr. Martin Luther King in the last year of his life. Some years after King's death, Bill Pepper went on to represent James Earl Ray in his guilty plea and subsequent conviction. Uh, Pepper believes that uh, Ray was framed by the federal government and that King was killed by a conspiracy that involved the FBI, the CIA, the military, the Memphis police, and organized crime figures from New Orleans and Memphis. He later represented James Earl Ray in a televised mock trial in an attempt to get Ray the trial that he never had. And then, of course, the civil trial, the wrongful death civil trial, King family versus Lloyd Jowers and other unknown conspirators. We'll get into that in a moment. That took place in Memphis in 1999. In that civil trial, the jury exonerated James Earl Ray. Also joining us, Cynthia McKinney, an American politician, activist, as a member of the Democratic Party, she served six terms in the United States House of Representatives. She has made a career of speaking her mind and challenging authority. She began on day one of her political life and hasn't looked back with her opinions, actions, and even her sense of style. McKinney has inspired both admiration and controversy. During her second term, her district was redrawn and renumbered the fourth district. She protested the new boundaries but was still elected to the seat. She was a supporter of a Palestinian state in Israel-occupied territory, sparked controversy by criticizing American policy in the Middle East. And Cynthia pressed for government transparency and accountability and introduced legislation to release the documents related to the murders of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Tupac Shakur. She was the first member of Congress to file articles of impeachment against George Bush, and she voted against every war funding bill put before her First of all, let's say hello to William Francis Pepper. Hello, Bill. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Yes, hello there. And uh, Cynthia McKinney, good to have you aboard as well. Thank you. Happy Easter to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's uh, begin with uh, you, Bill, if we could. And uh, let's, uh, let's talk about uh, the civil trial in 1999. Did you initiate that, or did the King family come to you? How did that come about? Well, James died in uh, in 1998, and um, we we sort of were at the end of the road in terms of trying to get the truth out of, about how Martin King was killed. And um, I entered into discussions with the family about what the options were, and we uh, we decided jointly to go forward in the uh, in the civil action against Lloyd Jowers who was the owner of Jim's Bar and Grill, we, uh, uh, behind which um, the shot was, was fired that killed Martin. And we had, we had picked up enough evidence over the years to show that Jowers had a knowing involvement in the assassination. And uh, so he, he was, uh, it was suitable for him to be sued. And um, we, uh, we decided to go forward with that trial. Jowers testified uh, in that trial by was it um, affidavit or how did he uh, how did Jowers? No, he never he never uh, took the stand in the trial. He had been um, he, he had he had been interviewed uh, 
by uh, myself and uh, Dexter King and then Andy Young and uh, and Dexter. And in the course of those interviews, he had laid out uh, his involvement in the assassination, and he had uh, he had effectively admitted uh, what he had done. And so um, those those were the statements that we we used to go forward against him. Why did you believe uh, Lloyd Jowers, or why should we believe that the... the, uh, uh, the well, I wasn't just believing Jowers. We had enough evidence. We, <laughs> right. we had people who saw him uh, in, you know, in, in, in meetings and involved with the, uh, with the actual assassination. We had a witness um, who had been his mistress who was in the kitchen when he ran in carrying the still-smoking rifle watched him break it down and wrap it in a cloth and take it back out to the kitchen. I mean, we, 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 had, uh, we, we had enough independent uh, evidence to go after Jowers. You, you called something like 70 witnesses to the stand? Yes, we had, we had uh, some 70 witnesses who testified uh, over a 30-day trial. And, I mean, we've talked about this in the past, but the, the, the fact that there was, I believe, only one working journalist who covered that trial. Let me, get the, let me bring Cynthia McKinney in as well in, in on this. And uh, Cynthia, you and I talked about this recently. Uh, not really a surprise that this wasn't covered by the mainstream media, was it? No, and uh, we shouldn't be surprised when the mainstream or corporate stream or special interest stream media fail to accurately cover important uh, stories of today, but um, I was just reviewing the uh, testimony, the extremely compelling testimony of William Schapp, who discussed the CIA involvement in the media, in buying the media, and um, I was also reviewing the church committee reports that documented the um, CIA participation in publishing houses, journalists, um, media outlets, um, and, and this is even going against the CIA charter of um, being involved inside the United States proper, um, but the CIA violated their charter and uh, used what was um, Frank Wisner called the, the the Grand Wurlitzer approach to media so that they could sit back and watch as people danced to the tune that they played. So um, this is the way in the counterintelligence program that they shaped people's views of um, activists who really were only trying to make the United States more responsive to the needs of, for example, um, Native Americans, blacks, um, and uh, radical militant whites who supported the claims for social justice of these various groups. I want to get into you know why Dr. King was targeted and and uh, William, you knew Dr. King sort of the last year of his life, and a year to the date before he was shot, he delivered the speech maybe that that 
I guess was what put it, you know, what 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 really uh, put him over the top in terms of, I guess, his perceived threat uh, to the intel, you know, the military-industrial complex. Take me back to to April fourth, nineteen sixty-seven. Talk to me about that speech that he delivered and and why that was so pivotal. Well, Martin King was an immensely courageous human being. Um, and I came back, I, I only met him um, when I came back from Vietnam, and uh, Ramparts Magazine published an article I wrote called The Children of Vietnam, which, which uh, described exactly what was going on out in the country and, and um, what was happening to the civilian population, who, most of whom were 15 years of age or under or very, very old. And, and the, uh, the photographs of the burned and maimed uh, children in particular um, just tore into him. He, he openly wept uh, in my presence when, when the, the, those files were revealed to him. And, and he just said he could no longer um, be silent. He, he, had, he had taken positions uh, that... You know, were leading toward him opposing the war, but now he, he he decided he had to he had to come out fully. And the Riverside speech, uh, April four sixty seven, was the was was the key. Okay, let me just jump in here, Bill. I've got to take a timeout. We'll come back. Cynthia McKinney, William Francis Pepper, as we commemorate the forty fifth anniversary of the assassination. Some say the state execution of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Welcome back, William Francis Pepper is uh, with us, along with Cynthia McKinney, as we uh, commemorate the 45th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King, Jr. And uh, William Francis Pepper represented the King family in a civil trial back in 1999 that exonerated James Earl Ray as Dr. King's killer. Uh, Cynthia McKinney was um, served six terms in the United States House of Representatives and uh, really uh, pushed the government to uh, release uh, documents uh, concerning the assassination of Dr. King. So uh, I guess, you know, as long as uh, Dr. King was, you know, uh, talking about civil rights and, and uh, supporting sanitation workers and so forth, uh, that was fine. But when he starts, you know, labeling his government as the United States as the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, uh, that's when he became a threat. Is, is, is that when it really turned around? No, I think that... that um that was not the primary reason he was killed. I mean, of course, it was he, he, he was pushing the envelope, and he, he was a, such a powerful a, a force that uh, him opposing the war was, was very serious. And he was maligned everywhere, called a traitor, and it, it took a great deal of courage. But why? He was, he was ultimately killed, not, not for the words and, and, and not even for the swaying of opinion, um, they don't kill you for that. They kill you when you become a serious threat uh, to the system itself and the security of the system and the, the well-being of, uh, of corporations and, and, and the subtle system of corporate fascism, which has uh, dominated this country for so long. What he, they killed him when he was going to bring to Washington in that spring half a million people who were going to not march, but going to stay there going to visit their elected representatives and try to get money put back into the social programs that had been taken out because of the war. And they were going to, they were going to camp and they were going to be there. 
and they they were seen as a potentially a potentially a, a revolutionary force. You have to remember what the context: a hundred cities had burned that year. There, the streets of Paris were the scene of a revolutionary movement that uh, virtually was was prepared to overthrow the government of Charles de Gaulle and create a new republic. And if it hadn't been for André Malraux uh, dealing with de Gaulle and effectively teaching him how to co-opt the communists and the labor unions and leaving the students hanging out by themselves, then you, you, you might well have had that revolution in France. All of this was going on at the time, and the military knew they didn't have the troops to put down any upsurge of violence in the nation's capital, and they were afraid that that would result when there would be ultimate failure in terms of the achieving of the goals that this, this movement had. So Martin was never going to be allowed to bring that mass of humanity, that mass of impoverished, miserable humanity, as well as uh, individuals across the spectrum who supported that plight, um, to Washington. He was not going to be allowed to leave Memphis alive, and that was uh, that was clearly, uh, in my view, what what led to his assassination. Cynthia, you and I uh, talked uh, a few weeks ago, off air, about uh, the, the the motivation here to get rid of him, and even before you know the decision, whenever that was made to to kill Dr. King, the attempts to discredit him. You talked to me about. The motivation, wanting to get him out, and and this, you know, the elite, the establishment, they wanted their guy, their choice, uh, you know, to 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 lead, uh, you know, the civil rights movement. They wanted someone else in there. They wanted to co-opt the movement. Talk to me about that. Are you still with us, Cynthia? Did we lose Cynthia? Can you hear us, Cynthia McKinney? She's there, apparently, but she can't hear us. Let's try to reconnect with her. Uh, William, no, where, where is Cynthia? Where is she located now? Uh, she's in Georgia. She's, oh, okay. uh, I, I believe she's joining us from Atlanta tonight. Uh, okay. But she'll, she'll join us uh, again in a few moments. But you had, um, Cynthia had uh, talked to us, uh, or talked to me, about, again, this motivation of wanting to get Dr. King out, discredit him, and bring their own person in there, someone that they could co-opt and control. Do you think that has any credence? Yes, I certainly do. I mean, I think that they, um, that's always the tactic. If they, if they could discredit and get, and, and get, effectively get rid of uh, a leader such as Martin King and replace him with someone else who can be uh, co-opted and controlled, that's, that's certainly a, a tactic. Assassination, political assassinations are the last resort. And, um, or everything else would, is normally tried beforehand in terms of control, manipulation, co-option. But uh, if, if that does not work, and th- then assassination is a, is a tactic that is used. The, uh, the jury in the, the, the civil trial in Memphis found Jowers responsible and found that the assassination plot included also governmental agencies. Can you talk to me about which governmental agencies specifically might have been involved or were involved? Well, I mean, the, the the evidence pointed to the involvement of intelligence agencies as well as the as well as the bureau, uh, and and of course on the scene the the local police department 
um, uh, and involvement was pretty well set out. And the um, uh, the ultimate contract, of course, was was given to a cutout. It was given to the mafia as a as a cutout device, which is not unknown uh, as well. And um, so the Marcello organization used its its Memphis people um, and uh, to work with the local police and and set this up on the ground in Memphis. Is that where Jowers comes in? He was hired by the uh, the mafia. Well, Jowers owed had, owed a great deal of money to Frank Liberto, who was a, a local lieutenant of uh, the Lucchese organization in in Memphis, which was a part of the Marcello group. So. Jowers uh, was told that this debt would be forgiven and he would be paid quite a large sum of money if he would cooperate. And, and his place was ideally suited because it uh, it backed onto the Lorraine Motel and was a, a heavily brush-filled area behind uh, his his bar and restaurant. And uh, so it was a, it was an ideal situation for uh, for uh, for him to come become involved and and he did. He also bought a taxi company himself uh, sometime after the assassination with the proceeds of funds that he received. Let me just check in to see if Cynthia has rejoined us. Uh, She's joining us on Skype and we're not able to to reach her on phone. Cynthia, are you there? No, we'll keep working on trying to get uh, Cynthia McKinney back. In the meantime, William Francis Pepper stays with us. And uh, uh, I'm sorry we lost Cynthia. As am I, but I'm sure we'll get her back. I'm sorry that the United States Congress lost Cynthia. We need Cynthia McKinney, back in the Congress. Not that she necessarily is going to change uh, policy with this crowd, but that she could get up every day, like John Quincy Adams did in the 19th century, and just speak that truth and and invade those kinds of values that this this republic has long since uh, moved away from. And that's that's the brilliance of of Cynthia and her independence, so we we need to figure, or she needs to figure a way of getting back into the Congress just so that she is there, and that she can rise, and she can speak, and uh, her words would be in the in that record. Who would who would have had to have signed off on on um, the assassination within within government? Would I mean uh, would J. Edgar Hoover's fingerprints be on this? Would oh, he- of course, of course. No, if they. No, no. The assassination was signed off at the highest level. The highest level. You're talking executive order, or I'm talking about the, the president of the United States. Lyndon, this would not have taken place. Lyndon Johnson, without without uh, uh, Johnson's full knowledge and uh, and agreement. Were the same. Remember, he he announced uh, four days before that he was not going to run again. And you think there's a connection. Oh, of course, is it connected? Can you expound on that? Explain further why. Well, Johnson Johnson uh, knew this was coming down, and it was coming down on his watch, and um, he didn't. Uh, in my view, uh, he he would not want to have uh, withdrawn uh, from political life and from running again for the presidency uh, in the face of uh, or after the assassination. And so it was. It was timely for him to uh, uh, to uh, agree not to run and to publicly announce that he wasn't going to run again uh, before the assassination. 
Let's go back to the, uh, the, the, uh, the flop house across from the Lorraine Motel. Oh, we, do we have Cynthia back? Cynthia McKinney, are you there? Yes, I am. Ah, delighted to have you back. Thank you, Cynthia. Um, I, I wanted to, to get you uh, also to comment on something I, I mentioned earlier, just before we lost you, and that is the, one of the reasons to get rid of Dr. King was because the establishment wanted to co-opt that movement, the civil rights movement, and put their person in there. Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, um, first of all, hi, Bill. Um, It's an honor to be on the same radio show as William Pepper. I mean, you know, you can't get much better than that when it comes to helping to unravel these massive lies and deceptions that have been carried out by our government that ended up um, with national icons um, being killed. And um, so I was also thinking about Bobby Kennedy and um, William Pepper's um, involvement around that assassination as well. Um, so why would Dr. King have been seen as inconvenient? Um, a group of Freedom of Information Act researchers were able to learn certain, uh, information about the last days of Dr. King and in one particular document, the thinking behind the um, the need to get rid of Dr. King, and I call it regime change on black America, on black people in the United States, because this, this document said uh, somewhere at the top there must be a Negro leader who is clean who can step into the vacuum and chaos once Dr. King is either exposed or assassinated. This document was dated May 11th, 1965. And basically what it um, outlines is the need for, and this is um, gone into further in the church committee reports about how the um, certain government, U.S. government operatives decided that they were just going to figure out a way to uh, declare the leadership of the black community before the black community had a chance to declare its own leadership. And um, this is all spelled out very very carefully in a series of FBI um, uh, memos and in this uh, CIA memo as well. That's pretty damning. Listen, we're about to take a break. When we come back, I want to get back to the Lorraine Motel. And uh, uh, Bill, I want to talk to you about uh, two very interesting witnesses, one of whom was uh, committed to a mental institution after she said what she saw. And uh, the other witness, whose testimony, I guess, basically sort of sealed the fate of uh, James Earl Ray was supposedly uh, drunk, incapacitated, unconscious in bed at the time. We'll uh, we'll talk about more of the uh, 
the state execution of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with William Francis Pepper and Cynthia McKinney right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. If you cannot be uh, stirred, emotionally moved by uh, the, the words you just heard coming out of Dr. Martin Luther King, then you hath not a heart that beats. I don't care if you're white, black, or purple. Uh, and I guess that's what made him so powerful and so dangerous. Uh, William Francis Pepper is with us, Cynthia McKinney, as we talk about the 45th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, back to uh, the flop house above Jim's Grill, uh, William. Two very interesting witnesses. Uh, uh, tell me about uh, one they chose to ignore and sent to a mental institution, and the other they chose to believe, but from what I remember or understand, he was drunk and unconscious and in bed. Well, Gray Stevens, um, I mean, they were both uh, alcoholics, <clears throat> and uh, Grace and Stevens and old Charlie Stevens um, lived up upstairs uh, in the room next to the room that was rented uh, by James under instructions. But, uh, Grace saw someone going down the back stairs um, before the, the, the shooting. The room James rented, and uh, and he was kept out of it most of the afternoon, sent on errands and various things. He was gone. I was used as a staging ground. And um, at one point, a member of the team uh, was going down the stairs, and Grace saw him and, um, and mentioned that she saw him. Well, she had, she had to be discredited. It wasn't all that difficult because she, she did have a drinking problem. But she was quite clear about having seen this person going down the stairs. As for her common-law husband, Charlie, um, uh, some minutes before the, the, the shooting, um, uh, a taxi driver named McCraw um, came up to pick up Charlie Stevens because he, was, he, he, he received a call uh, that Charlie needed a taxi to take him somewhere. So old James came up, went up the stairs, uh, to uh, take Charlie out, and he opened the door, and he saw him um, passed out, his head on the table, and um, <laughs> so drunk that he was certainly not capable of, of going anywhere with him. Uh, uh, so he left, and he left Charlie, Charlie just there with his head on the table. Now, this is the, this is the state's eyewitness who supposedly uh, identified James from the rear they identified someone going down the hallway and going out the front door of the building. One of the other things McGraw said was that uh, the bathroom door was open and the light was on. Um, and there was no one in the bathroom. When he was there and leaving, there was no one in the bathroom. And, of course, the state's position has always been the shot came from the bathroom. That James went in there, locked himself in, and uh, straddled the sides of the bathtub and managed to shoot Dr. King. Um, well, McGraw puts that uh, puts that to, to that lie to rest. He went out downstairs, got back in his taxi, and started to drive away. And in a very short time, um, it came over the, the word of the the shooting came over the, the radio, and he heard it. Um, and uh, so it's. It's not at all believable that Charlie Stevens could have awakened and become totally sober and cognizant, could see everything, and that uh, the bathroom door would have been occupied and 
shot in the shot would have come from there. So that's the story of those two, um, those, those two witnesses. Cynthia, you're serving in the United States House Representatives at this time uh, while this trial is going on. How, how, how did it make you feel, you know, representing a representative of the United States federal government? And, and knowing what you know about the complicity of certain individuals within the United States government, uh, and here you are part of that government, how did that make you feel? Did, okay, I think we've lost Cynthia again. Let me, let me ask you this, William. I mean, as, as uh, someone who practices law, the rule of law doesn't seem to mean much uh, of anything uh, these days. And, and, and if the United States government was involved in the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., then what does that say about the law? What does that say about the Constitution? Well, I mean, it, uh, it pretty much reduces it to meaningless words on paper. Uh, it, it, it is, however, the only recourse we have. Uh, there are uh, people of integrity uh, involved with the criminal justice system and involved with the government of the United States. Um, and they very often become very upset with what they see and what they hear, and sometimes they they become what's known as whistleblowers, right? And for for that precise purpose, um, it's very frustrating. I think the lawyers who get involved in these kinds of political cases, when when um, the pressures are so enormous on the on the courts and the judges to um, just keep the lid on the truth. You know, we just filed on Friday uh, a response to the magistrate's report on the Sirhan case, the assassination of Bob Kennedy. Um, and um, uh, it's, a, it's a detailed filing, and we encourage everyone to read it, uh, because the magistrate has for many, many, many years presided over the uh, relegation of... <laughs> The truth and the facts in, the, in that okay. case. Bill, I got to jump. Uh, I got to go into a break here. We'll come back. The state execution of MLK on the conspiracy show. William Francis Pepper stays with us. Cynthia McKinney. I think we've uh, rejoined Cynthia as we discuss the state execution of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, as we near the 45th anniversary. Cynthia, are you with us? Yes, I am. Let me ask you. Uh, you were serving uh, the United States House of, of Representatives six terms. How did that feel, uh, you know, serving in, in, in the U.S. government, knowing what you know about how Dr. King was, was disposed of by the government? Uh, how did that make you feel? Well, first of all, you have to understand that um, the United States itself was, is a country that was born on the genocide of indigenous people. And uh, then um, <laughs> built on genocide and and um, uh, founded on genocide and then built with uh, uh, a crime against humanity in the transatlantic slave trade. So uh, I'm not um, um, fooled or um, misled by the propaganda that comes out of the government. I understand very clearly what the United States government is capable of doing. And so um, it's one thing to to have these ideas. It's quite another thing, though, to see the documentation. 
and uh, the documentation around the counterintelligence program, the documentation that um, the, in the church committee reports, the specific um, information on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But the most damning of all is the December 1999 um, jury decision that William Pepper is responsible for us knowing about. And that is the entire trial where he brought out all of the details about um, the uh, fabricated the uh, fabricated down to the minute details of the 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 cover story around the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And that's why this fouling that William Pepper has just done on Sirhan is so important because the same way they constructed the lie about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his murder is the same way the lie was constructed about the murder of Bobby Kennedy. And not only do the people of the United States have the right to know what happened to their leaders, but um, these assassinations affected U.S. policy around the world. And so the global community also has a right to know what uh, happened to these particular individuals who championed peace and as a result of their murders allowed the United States to move to um, wi without any kind of um, uh, um, mm, uh, friction, I guess, <laughs> is the word that uh, should be used um, toward a policy of endless war. Uh, Bill, was the slug that was removed from Dr. King ever properly matched to the alleged murder weapon? No. No, the, 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 there was never there, there never was a match, and um, the, the the alleged murder weapon was a throwdown gun. That uh, was not the alleged weapon at all. No, there was no there was no match. But you know the same thing. I mean, Cynthia's quite right. She's talking about uh, the Sirhan case. Same thing is true in the Sirhan case. There, none of the uh, uh, the bullets from Sirhan's gun had ever been matched to any of the victims. And there were a number of people who were wounded by shots flying all over the pantry. Sirhan's, Sirhan's arm was pinned to the table, steam table, after he fired, uh, he fired two, managed to fire two shots. He got off two shots. He was under uh, hypnoprogrammed control. We've gone through this in great detail um, with Professor Brown from Harvard, who's had... Sirhan on free recall and hypnosis for over 70 hours. And we know the extent of the hypnoprogramming, the fact that they use chemicals as well as hypnosis, where it took place. I mean, we've, 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 we've broken that case as well. Uh, and we had 12 witnesses who said Sirhan was always in front of Bob Kennedy, never behind him. And Bob was hit, of course, by three bullets at Powderburn Range from the rear. It's impossible for Sirhan to have uh, have done that. Then his arm was pinned, and he kept pulling the trigger in robot-like fashion, and the bullets went all over the place. Uh, and the 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 neck bullet that was taken from Bob Kennedy um, 
was not the neck bullet that was introduced at trial. We've established factually, without dispute, that they substituted a bullet. His, Sirhan's lawyer was under indictment at the time throughout the entire trial, through the trial, did not challenge the state on anything, accepted all of the ballistics evidence. And this was a farce, total farce. And they've kept this case out of court and kept this uh, innocent patsy in prison um, for all these years um, <clears throat> on the basis of procedural defects, uh, because previous lawyers had missed filing times and things of that sort. So they, they, this is the way they avoid getting the facts out. But, you know, Cynthia's quite right. Even we, when we had the civil trial and we did put out all the evidence, the media didn't cover it. Um, and um, they were there when Mrs. King testified and Andy Young, but then they left when the heavy evidence started being put on. They, they, the mainstream media will not cover this case and uh, these cases because political assassination is something that is not supposed to exist. And, in this republic, is it, it does. There's and a connection. We need Cynthia McKinney back in the, right. in the Congress, so at least she could get up every day and she could be be putting these things in a record. And uh, we should figure out how to get you back in, Cynthia. Is there a, is there a connection? I throw this out to both of you um, as we head into the uh, the top of the hour and, and say good night. But is there a connection that in, in terms of the the people involved in the same people in JFK? Um, um, Malcolm X, um, Dr. King, Bobby Kennedy. Don't talk about people. Talk about institutions. The FBI and the intelligence institutions in this country are the foot soldiers for the well-being and the stability of corporate interests who run the society. This has been the case going back time immemorial. They tried to overthrow Mr. Roosevelt. You probably know something about this right. in 1933. Uh, and at that time, it was the Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, the DuPont, and the Harriman, Brown Harriman interest, would, and the Mellons determined to overthrow Roosevelt. And they sent General Smedley Butler to him, a two-time Congressional Medal Award winner, to tell him he had to step down or they would kill him. This was an attempt because Roosevelt was determined to prosecute that entire crowd, including Alan Dulles and John Forster Dulles, for collaborating with the Nazis, for supporting American corporations who were dealing with the Nazis throughout the war. And Mr. Roosevelt died one month before the end of the war, and all of, his, all of the indictments he planned and all the prosecution that he planned went awry. Anybody who's interested in reading, there's a a book by a fellow called Glenn Yadon, Y-E-A-D-O-N, which documents all of this blow by blow. This is the nature of corporate fascism that has that supported the Nazis during the war, collaborated in joint ventures with I.G. Farben and, and, and their patent mammoth patent operations. This is nothing new, and the political assassination is just another tactic that's used as a last resort to keep control of the system. Let's get that book title once again, uh, Bill. That, that book is called uh, 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 Nazi Hydra in America. The, the author is a fellow called Yadon, Y-E-A-D-O-N, Glenn Yadon. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a devastatingly thorough research on what happened 
and how these corporate fascists supported supported the Nazis. Prescott Bush himself ran 23 of these companies all during the war. Uh, Cynthia, uh, tell me about the MLK Records Act. You introduced two different versions of the same bill, um, I guess starting about 10 years ago. What was that act about, the Records Act? Well, it was just about the release of uh, the remaining uh, documents um, pertaining to the surveillance and then, of course, the, the, the murder of Dr. King. And um, we uh, have lots of records that, that need to be released. And thank goodness we have William Pepper, who has written at least, what, three books? Well, two. The third, Cynthia, is uh, still in preparation. But yes, there are, there are two, Orders to Kill and uh, Act of State. And there's a third one that will ultimately, <laughs> ultimately be coming out when I find the time to finish it. Well, there's there's so much uh, uh, evil and wrongdoing <laughs> going on that you 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 you're you're just being kept busy um, just with the current state of affairs, unfortunately. But um, we all need that third book to come out as well. And um, you've inspired me, Bill, to um, uh, do my PhD on just this very topic of uh, the use of political assassination as a policy tool of the oh, U.S. Oh, that's great. That's great, Cynthia. Because yeah. it's a tactic that, that is used, you know, and go, it's immemorial. You, go, you can go back to Caesar and before, even you yes. know, before Socrates, all the way forward. And the Americans have used it continually around the world. Um, you know, they've killed Mossadegh in, uh, in 53, and then kill him, but they, they moved him out of power in 53 in order to control the Iranian oil. I mean, it goes on and on and on. It's, uh, you know, they tried to kill uh, uh, Fidel. They've tried to kill uh, de Gaulle several times, you know, when, when he got out of line. It's a, it's a, and, and, of course, you know, Fidel over 40 times. And then we got a whole other series of problems in South America that we can talk about another time. Yes, I would love to have you on to talk about your, um, your, your good friend and the late uh, Hugo Chavez. I had... Uh, Greg Pallast on the show a couple of weeks ago discussing that, and uh, uh, would love to have both of you on. Uh, you have an open invitation to appear on this show anytime. Uh, Cynthia, any chance that you will run again? Well, um, there are a lot of people who are talking about it. I'm just trying to finish my schoolwork right now and um, leave the possibility always open because it seems that the situation in the U.S. Congress has certainly deteriorated since I left just, in 2007, that's for sure. Just a quick uh, last point from each of you. How would the world be different today if Dr. King had not been felled by that bullet? Well, in my view, if, if, if Martin King would have been a powerful force uh, for peace, for uh, ending, ending the war in Vietnam much more quickly, and working in collaboration with Bob Kennedy. Uh, we have to see those assassinations, which are less two months apart, as 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 being twins um, that were that were evils that were visited on the people of this republic by the, uh, the those forces of power, but together, Bob was committed was totally committed to ending the war in Vietnam and putting this co this country on a course to peace, and Martin would have been his ally each step of the way. It's not even clear that Martin King might not have been at 
a running mate of Bob Kennedy's. I, I, you know, I knew Bob. I was his citizen's chairman of Westchester County, New York, when he ran in, for the Senate in 64 when I was just a kid. Can you imagine but, that ticket? Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr., well, my word. Listen, uh, we're out yeah, of time. Uh, that Bill, was not an impossibility. That's all I will say. Bill uh, Pepper, thank you for this. Cynthia, uh, again, let's, uh, let's have you on again soon and talk some more. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Thank Good you. to hear you, Cynthia. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. You can follow me here at theconspiracyshow.com. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hey friends, good to have you aboard. Also good to have aboard another good friend of the program from Zealand News Network, the Executive Director, Victor Vigiani. How are you? Uh, just fine. It's great to be here with you again. Fresh off, a, fresh off a cruise? Fresh off a cruise, yes. That's uh, what better way to put it. Fresh off a cruise. Now, when you're, I would imagine the when you're on a uh, cruise ship way out in the middle of uh, the ocean, mm-hmm. you look up at this. I mean, you're someone who spends a lot of time looking up, you know. Uh, the, star, the stars, mm-hmm. I mean, the absence of light pollution, the stars must be spectacular. Actually, for three of the nights that we were out there, the sky was absolutely spectacular. It's, it, it, it actually looked like a cloudy night, but the, if you looked up at it, and it was actually clouded with stars. And I spent a lot of time on deck watching things move around. And Anything suspicious? Well, I did see some things move this way and that, but nothing which you would want to call irregular. Um, actually, three or three... Th- yeah, three nights of it, and... You know, I, I, I must say, in all honesty, not, not anything spectacular, but there were things moving, and I, I attribute it to satellites and just, and, but nothing anomalous. Too bad, really, but... Yeah, yeah, that's the thing, that we don't spend enough time looking up. I mean, who has the time to go outside, you know, in the middle of the night, and right. then just look up and... Mm-hmm. But if we did, who knows what we would see? Well, there's so much out there, and that's the, that's the really disappointing thing about what most people do is, is that and the way they interact with it. Because if you did spend time, and uh, I, it, one of the nights in the in the Nevada desert, when when I was there and, and seeing the things that actually do occur, that you say, oh my goodness, oh, 
that shouldn't be happening. And it does, and it, it re- really makes you reflect upon what's really going on in the, up, uh, up in the skies. When, and we don't spend a lot of time looking at that, so no. I guess it's something that most people just take for granted. Well, yeah, and so, uh, and so our, our entire uh, perception of the UFO issue has been shaped essentially by Hollywood and what we see on TV and on the big screen. Uh, and, you know, through that lens, distorted, uh, you know, we're being spoon-fed this particular message, but I don't, I've never been able to get a handle on if who's ever in control of the mm-hmm. UFO file and if they have a direct pipeline into Hollywood. I'm, I've always been conflicted by what message they're trying to send us about E.T. because uh, on the one hand, you have War of the Worlds, E.T. bad, and then you have another Spielberg movie, E.T. Sure. good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know what to make of Hollywood, but you know, every year they, they've, and, and, and with increased... Regularity now. They've got um, their regular. They've got this huge catalog of movies that they're wow. uh, on the UFO ET issue that's coming down the pipe. Purposeful confusion. Well, we've got someone on the line. Hopefully, that can help us uh, sort this out. Let's hope. Yes. Dur- joining us on the line from Merry Old England, uh, Robbie Graham is the editor of SilverScreenSaucers.com. Great website. Check it out. SilverScreenSaucers.com. It's dedicated to news, commentary, articles on Hollywood's UFO movies. He's also currently writing a populist book on the subject of UFOs in Hollywood titled Silver Screen Saucers, Sorting Fact from Fiction in Hollywood's UFO Movies. And we're hoping to do a little bit of that over the next hour here on The Conspiracy Show. And uh, let's welcome aboard Robbie Graham. How are you, Robbie? Hey, guys. How are you? You're coming in wonderfully clear at uh, 5 o'clock in the morning. What a, uh, what a great sport you are. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific so for you, Robbie. Great How- to be on the show again. How much time do you spend actually screening Hollywood movies that deal with UFOs and ETs? Uh, I suppose the question would be how much time do I spend doing anything else? (laughs) (laughs) And not a great deal of time doing anything else. I know it's pretty much my life right now um, until this book is finished. Um, uh, So, yeah, a lot of time I, I try to watch any film that comes out theatrically or on DVD that deals with the ET visitation issue, and there are a lot of them. I mean, there's there's constantly, you know, there's a constant barrage of new films coming out. Last year we had Men in Black 3, The Watch, uh, Prometheus, but then there's the whole back catalogue. I mean, can you ever catch up? It's difficult, actually. Um, you, you usually don't catch up until several months afterwards, because um, I usually don't manage to catch every single uh, alien visitation themed film that comes out theatrically each year, although I try to catch most of them. And then you've got the smaller products which go either straight to dvd or which are released only uh, in a limited way across you know certain territories um, and these are the films that most people miss and so with that in mind i've, I've put together a list of, sort of five um uh, ufo alien visitation themed films which i think probably most people will have missed at theaters uh, in 2012. Uh, these are sort of slightly less glossy products typically not american well, in fact, not American at all. They're, they're from the UK. Uh, they're from Australia, from Italy, for example, Ireland. Um, there are a handful of these titles, which most of them, to be honest, are, are not <laughs> probably not worth people's time, unless you are a real UFO buff and sort of are, are keen to catch every single uh, cinematic representation of the subject. Uh, and, 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 you know, with that in mind, there are some interesting titles in there. For example, you've got a film... Uh, that came out last year called, uh, well, imaginatively titled UFO, which was a UK film directed by Dominic Byrne. 
and you've got a film called um, Grabbers, which is an Irish film directed by John Wright. Uh, Storage 24, which is another UK movie. Uh, you've got uh, Crawl Space, which is quite an interesting one, albeit very bad uh, Australian film. And um, uh, you've got the ridiculously titled uh, The Arrival of Wang, uh, W-A-N-G, uh, and that's an Italian film. Uh, very, very interesting uh, film from a ufological perspective, from an exopolitical perspective. Well, let's just look uh, at Hollywood for a second, Robbie. Are they just mm. trying to make a good popcorn movie, or is there is there an agenda? Uh, uh, is there some sort of a meme that's running through these these uh, offerings out of uh, uh, out of Hollywood? Um, I've dealt before with the issue of you know this Hollywood UFO conspiracy. Is there a Hollywood UFO conspiracy? If so, who's behind it? What does it entail? What's the ultimate goal? Um, and yes, there is evidence to suggest that there is, uh, well, I mean, there's this, this, you know, concrete evidence to suggest that historically the US government has been interested in, uh, content of Hollywood's UFO themed productions. It's monitored these productions. It's at times attempted to censor them and at times also seeded them to an extent. And um, typically that's been in a debunking and demystifying capacity. Um, so yes, clearly there has been involvement on the part of the US government in UFO themed movies, uh, many, many cases, and I've written about this quite extensively. Um, the question though, I think that most people really want to find an answer to is, is there a acclamation agenda rather than a debunk, uh, rather than just a debunking one? Um, again, there is limited evidence to suggest that there is possibly an acclamation agenda or has been um, in a handful of cases scattered across the decades. It's not something where there appears to be um, an overarching uh, goal or, or, or a clear message, a clear message, uh, shall we say. Um, so, for example, you've got the Robert Emenegger case of, of the early 1970s, uh, where many branches of the US government, as well as NASA, uh, all collaborated on a film which very clearly gave the idea that we are being visit, uh, visited by ETs. You've got the Ward Kimball case of the 1950s, where you had the uh, Disney animated Ward Kimball claim that there was a, uh, a, a joint project between the Air Force and Walt Disney, which was again intended to acclimate people to the idea of uh, ET visitation and ET reality. And that was ultimately aborted, as was, um, well, the Emanega project went ahead, but it didn't go ahead in the way that it had intended to be, uh, with real, allegedly real UFO projects included. Um, you've got a handful of other cases um, since then, which are interesting, where you've got collaboration, again, between Disney and the CIA um, and NORAD, for example, on the 2009 movie Race to Rich Mountain. Um, and, and again, it's probably another five or six cases like that, but they are scattered. They don't seem to be... Um, uh, the films that are coming, that are coming out along those lines don't seem to have a clear message. Um, they seem disparate in their, in their agendas. And so it, I think that if there is an acclamation agenda, it's, it's, it's one that changes um, in, its, in its specific nature from decade to decade, depending on what's going on behind the scenes, I guess. Uh, but the, again, so to, 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 to summarize that, in terms of acclamation, in terms of the, an alleged acclamation agenda, the evidence is patchy, but it's there. Uh, the evidence for censorship and monitoring is concrete and overwhelming. Um, so, but again, overwhelmingly, we're talking here about a natural cultural phenomenon with UFO movies. It's entered popular culture. 
you've got a subcultural subject, which is the UFO phenomenon, which in the past well, several decades, especially in the last, especially since the 1990s and the explosion of Roswell into popular culture, reverted the X-Files, and then you had films like Independence Day, Men in Black. All of these films took this subcultural discourse, um, these uh, sightings which were really restricted to pages of, of uh, specialised UFO literature, and all of a sudden they've been brought into uh, into the mainstream, and now it's very hard to sort of sort back the fantasy because Hollywood is very liberal with, uh, with the truth as represented on, on the page, uh, and then how it kind of translates that to the screen. So would, would you figure that, um, you know, Back with, let's begin with uh, one of my favorites, I guess, you know, The Day the Earth Stood Still. And w- w- that was a, an absolutely magnificent um, piece of cinematography, the way it was handled back then. And you've just written a recent article on that, I know. Uh, would you have, in your estimation, would you think that that was sort of an experiment with the American sort of public culture at the time to assess their... Um, the you know the American public's perception of the UFO ET issue at the time to kind of gauge where they were at because we all know that that was a very powerful film uh, and it was a, I think it was done in a very concerted effort to kind of assess the American public's perception about the UFO issue at the time uh, and and I guess the second part of that question was how much more sophisticated has it become since then. Um. Well, yes, the Dadius is still one that people have always pointed to as being suspicious, shall we say, just simply in terms of its content, um, how far ahead of, how far ahead of its time it was in terms of the, the UFO subject, um, and its representations of specific ecological details, like, like liquid metal, for example, that was later, that was developed earlier before the Roswell, but which didn't actually surface in, in public reports until years later, um, and many other, many other aspects there as well. Um, it's a very interesting film, um, and it's one that I've looked at for, for years, but never found anything really concrete on until recently. Again, it's still not concrete, but there is now, I would say, quite strong circumstantial evidence to support the idea that indeed the Dadaist still probably was um, some form of test of public reaction to the idea that we are being visited. Um, and so what you've got with the Dadaist still, well, well, to put it in context, in, in 1983... Let me just, um, uh, sorry, J- Robbie, i got to jump in here. We've got uh, the music percolating up, so that means yeah. we're going into a break. We'll come back. Robbie Graham, the editor of SilverScreenSaucers.com. Victor Vigiani in studio, the executive director of Zeland News Network, back with more of The Conspiracy Show as we examine Hollywood and the UFO ET issue. Uh, welcome back. Victor Vigiani, executive director of Zeland News Network, joins me in studio on the uh, line... Joining us by Skype from England is Robbie Graham, editor of SilverScreenSaucers.com. Uh, SilverScreenSaucers.com as he discusses the cultural, industrial, political processes by which Hollywood's UFO movie content is shaped, uh, as well as the impact of these movies on popular perceptions of the UFO phenomenon. Now, I can understand why uh, intelligence organizations, uh, the military, might be interested in in massaging the message that's coming out of a Hollywood as it pertains to, well, just in terms of propaganda, using Hollywood as a, as a, as a propaganda instrument. And I can understand if, if it's a movie about uh, communism or about uh, you know, an anti-drug message or something like that, but for, for the life of me, I can't understand why uh, the military, the CIA, would be interested in a movie about flying saucers and ETs unless... 
unless, you know, they're real and they know it and therefore they feel the need to control the message. I mean, it's, well, is, I mean it, is, that, is that obvious? Am I oversimplifying? No, that's right. I mean, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, <clears throat> that's precisely why they're interested. But, you know, that's not really a big surprise. If you look at the, the, the government's own documentation on the UFO subject, CIA documentation, FBI documentation, if you look at Air Force documentation, reams and reams and reams of it. Although it never explicitly spells out the, you know, probable extraterrestrial nature of the phenomenon, it pretty much it does everything but. You know, if you if you look at it on uh, as a as a collective of documents, and there are thousands and thousands of documents, the picture that emerges is one of a government that is deeply, deeply concerned by a sub by a phenomenon uh, that they are powerless to control and which seems to be uh, non-terrestrial in origin. That's you know that's what the documents say essentially. Um, as I say, without ever explicitly sort of you know coming to that conclusion, because of course. If such documents exist, then so they're not going to be released, at least not for a good while to come. Um, however, so if you take this this idea that the government is deeply concerned, and indeed that is borne out by the documentation, um, then it makes sense that the government would want to uh, have a hand in how this phenomenon is represented on screens, uh, particularly on the silver screen. Uh, the government has always recognised the immense power of cinema to shape uh public perception of hot button issues and of course well arguably there is no hotter uh, political issue than the, than the ufo phenomenon and therefore you know you, you've really got to get in uh, you've got to get your hand in uh, and and you know luckily for the u.s government um the air force uh, various branches as well as the cia have been involved in hollywood uh in a collaborative process for decades and the cia got involved in a big way in 1953 uh, the Air Force, uh, uh, various branches of the military, rather, uh, before that. Um, and, and so, you know, there is a very close collaboration. Even NASA's in on the game now. Um, uh, you know, you name it, uh, as a government organization, it's in Hollywood. In fact, it's literally in Hollywood because on the 12th floor of the Oppenheimer building in, uh, in Los Angeles, is uh, the entire floor is uh, U.S. government uh, branches, which are based in Hollywood, so you've got the, the Air Force um, uh, uh, team of uh, Hollywood collaborators, you've got the Navy, the Army, uh, you've got the National Guard, you've got NASA, all of those guys have uh, offices uh, in the Oppenheimer building and they work on a 24-hour, you know, well, not 24-hour, but seven days a week uh, basis with, with Hollywood uh, filmmakers in order to, in their own words, uh, improve accuracy and authenticity in those films. So uh, and and of course, they do work with big UFO-related productions as well. And there are numbers, uh, numerous uh, productions over the years where you've had military collaboration on UFO themed films. So, if, if that's the case, and let's just sort of look ahead here. <clears throat> Excuse me, Robbie. Just for a second, and, and I'm trying to wrap my mind around what you're saying. Um, if if this issue, let's just assume they're, they're dealing with this issue in the way they are. It seems to me there's a very concerted effort behind what they're doing. It's, it's quite clear. I mean, there's, you know, you don't have to be a, you know, brain, a brain surgeon to see there's a very concerted effort to characterize this issue in a certain way. And so many agencies, NASA, FBI, the film industry, have gone out of their way to characterize it in a certain way. But down the road somewhere, when this stuff all comes out in the wash, when we realize that we are, in fact, being engaged by 
these um, extraterrestrial um, civilizations, and that's going to come. It's only a matter of time, in my opinion. Um, how will the film industry and the government, let's just say from your point of view, the film industry, be able to rationalize what they've done to us in order to characterize it in this way? When it comes out, in fact, they've told us it's this way, it's that way, the, the ETs are this, the ETs are that, but in fact, we've been conditioned to believe it's a certain way, and then in the final analysis, it's something totally different, and we've been con- uh, you know, tricked cons- uh, and, and completely... Um, how would you how would you characterize it? We've been jury rigged to believe it's a certain way, and it's not going to work out that way. Won't they be behind the eight ball when this all comes out to to, to show us that it's another way and not the way they're portraying it? So when we talk about Hollywood being involved, being complicit, um, which it is in a gen, in a general way, as I say, you have to be careful not to to generalize. When we talk about Hollywood, we're not talking about Hollywood as an entire industry from top to bottom being involved in in a acclamation agenda or a censorship agenda mm-hmm. with regards to, to UFOs. That's absolutely not the case. When we talk about Hollywood, uh, we're talking about a handful, really, um, of, but more realistically, it's, it, over the years, it's going to have been several hundred people um, in key positions, in choke points, as I like to call them, throughout the industry. You have certain writers, for example, um, certain script doctors, certain producers, certain studio heads, perhaps certain directors, and even certain actors who over the decades have been uh, friendly to the causes of the U.S. government, not just on the UFO issue, but on a broad range of issues. Of course, um, yeah. And, and so these are people who, for lack of a better word, you might term assets. Um, and there have been many, many uh, assets over the years. And of course, there continue to be assets in the industry. You only need really a few people um, in key positions in order to exert your influence effectively. Um, so when we talk about Hollywood, we're not, we're not talking about everybody. It's not everyone who's involved. Most people, I mean, the vast majority of people in Hollywood have no idea. Um, and even the people who are being used as assets um, on this subject, even they will only have a very, very limited uh, amount of knowledge on the subject. It's, mm-hmm. Everything is in, on a need-to-know basis. Of course. So um, I doubt even the assets themselves would ever be outed anyway, even after the fact. Um, so I don't think anyone's really going to be held accountable in Hollywood uh, necessarily. Um, uh, as far as the you know the, the secret keepers in 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 the corporate world and in the world of politics are concerned, well that's another matter. Um, but in Hollywood, it's I think it's going to be very hard ever to root out exactly who was involved and how they did it. Although we could you know we can we can speculate um, uh, with, with some good good facts uh, you know at our disposal. Help me understand though what the what the message is because uh, as Victor said you know if the game here is to acclimatize us, I mean, is I, I wonder is it really because what we see more often and I granted I don't see a lot of uh, of, of UFO movies or ET movies, uh, but it seems that they're playing up sort of the absurdist aspect of the you know if I look at Men in Black and uh, the man working behind the counter at Seven Eleven is an alien and, well, and and so forth. You know if I if I, if I were to have to um put my finger on what the overarching message is. Um, I would have to say, again, this is not to suggest that there is a grand conspiracy because I think that it's, it's more sporadic than that. There are, there are isolated efforts over the years. Um, but if there is an overarching um, message behind all of these sporadic efforts over the years, then it seems to be this, essentially. UFOs are real. So we are being visited by extraterrestrials. 
However, the government is, and, and when this this will sound strange to to listeners, but you know, the, the, the message is that the government is essentially not to be held accountable for the decades-long cover-up, um, and that the government has done its best in a very difficult situation, and that the governments are the ones to turn to uh, when the shit hits the fan, if I can use that phrase, um, because um, the ETs are hostile, and that's the message that Hollywood puts out. ETs are hostile, we should fear them. Um, there are exceptions to this, of course, you have your ETs and you have your cocoons and your starmen, but overwhelmingly ETs are extremely hostile, and the people you have to turn to uh, in these times of crisis are the US Air Force, the Army, um, NASA sometimes, you know, the CIA. Well, the, even, the, yeah, that of even, course, that even, of course even, is, even, yeah. But even that, Richard, the, the men in black as well, which uh, the message of the men in black, of course, strangely, is that, you know, I mean, it's in the, it's in the, uh, the Will Smith rap, you know, go on with your lives yeah. to get the Roswell craft. And that, of course, is the message. That That is the message that they want to get out there, that d- despite whoever the ETs are, uh, that, yes. the, the message the message is that they want to get through is that it's okay whatever ET is whoever or whatever they are the United States Air Force will in fact be the Independence Day relievers of the pain of the UFO ET incursion in in the uh, in, in, in in humanity and that it, it, to me is a false perception it's a it's something that's absolutely totally and objectively in opposition to what this thing might be so why are they presenting this particular particular point of view and using Hollywood as their main construct as to how the American and I guess global uh, audience needs to perceive ET while while uh, th- there may be a different message how does that other message get out and if it isn't possible to get that out how can it be that that message could even possibly be uh, be, be transmitted to to the rest of humanity and I think we're being sort of deluded into the fact that this ET message is something very very, very different than what it really is. But I could, I could, I could, aren't there enough examples, whether you're talking about contact or you mentioned E.T., enough examples uh, that E.T. is friendly and E.T. is here to save us from ourselves and E.T. is, you know, we're, we're trying, they're trying to uh, welcome us into this, you know, this cosmic galactic, galactic brother. Yeah. Aren't there enough of those movies out there uh, that would, 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 um, Sort of counter that argument that they're trying to shape the you know ET is bad. Well, I, I yeah I, I guess th- there are, but I guess my point is that it it could be something benevolent or it could be could be something hostile. I I I don't know which it is. I and I I keep on and I said this in the show many times before, Richard. When we find out what this is all about, it will in fact be totally different than what we perceive. So it could be hostile, it could be benevolent. But the fact of the matter is that the United States government is using these agencies to profess a, a specific point of view about what the extraterrestrial presence is all about is 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 orchestrated and to the extent that it's orchestrated in 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 my opinion is extremely biased right well we can always count on the government for that of course i mean that's the way it's going to work out anyways right well robbie uh uh again going back to the message you've got you've got the et et is here to save us you've got et is here to destroy us Okay, so what you'll find is the, Is that the some sort of sonic dissonance that, that's done on purpose? No, the, the, films in, the films in which E.T. is here to save us, um, but for, well, 99% of those, and there's really only a handful of those films anyway, but 99% of them 
have had no military support. They've had no official ah, government involvement. There you go. Okay. So um, NASA was involved in a very limited capacity in Spielberg's ET, for example, but it flat out refused to be, have any involvement, as did the Air Force, in Spielberg's close encounters. Um, and then all of the other um, uh, sort of friendly, uh, friendly ET movies, uh, they don't have government involvement in them at all. Ah. Whereas one, the, ones, the ones that have collaboration are things like Battle Los Angeles, for example, are things like um, Tran the Transformers <coughs> franchise. Um, in the Transformers franchise, you'll have um, uh, War of the Worlds, Spielberg's War of the Worlds, have military collaboration, and uh, numerous other films. I mean, some hostile ET movies also get um, denied cooperation from the, from the Air Force, as Independence Day was denied cooperation from the Air Force, for example, because it refused to remove references uh, to Area 51 and Roswell, um, because it was one of the, well, it's really the first major, major motion picture that um, used those uh, those ideas in, in a really big, uh, pivotal way in terms of its narrative, and I think they were very worried about that. Obviously, they realised that you can't that you can't keep denying collaboration to uh, to Hollywood films that use these terms because once the, you know because it was already exploding into popular culture, and if they were going to get their message across, they had to start to bend a little bit with Hollywood filmmakers. Um, so, so as you say, you know. The, the, the really good examples to look at in terms of military collaboration and getting that message across is um, are the Transformers films, as well as Battle Los Angeles, for example. These are films where the military is portrayed as a force of good. Secrecy is essentially justified um, because the ETs are hostile and the cover-up is, is being orchestrated. This, it's all suddenly very clear to me now, Robbie. Now I understand it. Now I get it. Okay, we'll take a time out, come back. Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network, Robbie Graham, silverscreensaucers.com. Uh, welcome back, and uh, again, just a, a special hello and welcome to uh, our new affiliate, KGYAM1240, Olympia, Washington. Hope you're enjoying the program. Would love to hear from uh, listeners up in Washington. Robbie Graham is with us, the editor of SilverScreenSaucers.com, and Victor Vigiani, a good friend, executive director of Zeland News Network in studio as we talk about Hollywood and the UFO ET issue. Uh, Robbie, uh, I know you know primarily you're, you're looking at uh, uh, motion pictures coming out of Hollywood and some independent and so forth. Do you ever do you delve into documentaries? I'm wondering um, if there is a, a if there is um, any control influence uh, by the military, the intelligence groups in in the documentary field. Well, as I um, referred to earlier, the uh, 1974 movie uh, feature-length documentary feature. Um, by Robert Emenegger called UFOs Past, Present and Future, which has been extensively documented now. Um, it's it's really the strongest case ever for government collaboration uh, with filmmakers on the UFO issue uh, in an acclamation uh, way. Uh, this is a film that, that very clearly put across the message that UFOs are real, ETs are visiting us. Um, and, you know, as I say, it had, uh, had cooperation from the Air Force, uh, from the Army, from the Navy, from NASA, um, and it seems to have gone all the way up to Richard Nixon in terms of uh, the person who gave the go-ahead for the documentary to, to be produced. It was supposed to feature allegedly real uh, alien landing footage, which was pulled at the last minute. Um, there was, again, this, this 1950s, mid-1950s um, project uh, collaboration between the Air Force and Walt Disney um, that Walt Kimball discussed, where, again, um, allegedly real footage, not landing footage, but real UFO footage was promised. 
and uh, withdrawn at the last minute and the project was abandoned. Um, these are pretty pretty strong cases, especially the animated case, um, because the documentary, of course, is eventually released, um, albeit without the footage, and was nominated for a Golden Globe. And even without the footage, it's a very compelling, uh, a very compelling documentary that really does put across a very strong message and, and is officially supported by, by the uh, US government. Um, in more recent years, you had um, uh, a lot of people have been pointing, especially in recent weeks and months, to the 1996, 1995 um, Walt Disney documentary slash promo uh, Alien Encounters from New Tomorrowland, which was a very strange 45 minute documentary which was released in the mid 90s that was broadcast on literally about five or six uh, American TV networks without uh, prior announcement and uh, was never seen again. Um, and people have talked about it for years after saying it was a test of public reaction and it was a film that put across a <laughs> unambiguous message that aliens are real. It was a documentary presented by Robert Urich um, and you know it was bashing the viewer over the head with the idea that they are not alone and that UFOs are absolutely without doubt alien and we are being visited and we better get used to it because any day now the cat's going to come out of <laughs> the bag and then this documentary was produced and it disappeared um, however I, I interviewed the director and the writer of that documentary there called Andrew Thomas um, a couple of years ago and I did quite a long interview with him and, and he satisfied me largely that if there was a conspiracy certainly he wasn't in on it um, he was a guy who I mean you can read you can read his his full interview with me um, and my my full take on it on my blog on my silverscreensources.com site um, but uh, suffice to say I don't think that's suspicious I do think there are lingering doubts in my mind as to what the real goal was with that with that documentary it's very interesting but certainly he was you know he's adamant that there's no there was no conspiracy here obviously he would say that would there be yeah it was. But, but honestly, but I genuinely don't think that it's as, as suspicious as it seems. Um, there is uh, more recently, of course, I mean, you've got documentaries like, you know, independent filmmakers like James Fox, for example, making documentaries, uh, excellent documentaries on the other subject nowadays, which are free of, of government influence. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, and they're putting across a very interesting um, perspective on the subject. Um, there's, uh, uh, there's another documentary, which I'm trying to think of, um, which... Is which is more recent, and I can't think what it is now. But but, but generally, um, the the government uh, doesn't tend to get involved. Oh, there we go. It just occurred to me. The uh, TV broadcast um, uh, UFO uh, UFO cover up live, rather uh, from the late 1980s. Um, this was this was again emanating mm -hmm. involved in that, and you had you know the um, the Avery involved in that, and you had. Um, uh, all sorts of very interesting uh, spooks uh, involved in that. In of course, that well, uh, there's the other aspect to that, Robbie, is that the History Channel here in Canada, I'm not sure exactly how it's um, portrayed uh, in the UK or even in the United States, but the History Channel over the last little while has really put forward the ancient alien 
documentaries. I mean, there's just documentary after documentary. There's I'm not sure exactly who's producing yeah. it. And then, of course, uh, they, there's a new uh, alien mystery series that's being proffered by another network. And I, I just don't know who's exactly behind these. And okay. these are very well-documented uh, uh, you know, programs that are, yeah. are, are taking off and really presenting a really very clear perspective on the perspective uh, of, of the UFO ET issue. Okay, let's take a quick time out. We'll come back. Robbie Graham, SilverScreenSaucers.com. Victor Vigiani, Zealand News Network, Hollywood and the UFO ET issue, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Hollywood and the UFO ET issue. You mentioned a documentary that came out in 1974. Uh, very interesting year, 1974. That We were su- supposed to have uh, another uh, lunar mission that year, Apollo 18. Uh, of course, the last year we went to the moon was 1973, and then the Apollo 18 uh, launch is scuttled, canceled. Uh, and we never went back. And then a couple of years ago, I think in 2011, there was a movie called Apollo 18. The premise of which was secretly they sent uh, this mission up to the moon, Apollo 18. It was some sort of, uh, it, the cover story was it was some sort of satellite retrieval uh, mission, but they actually went to the moon and then all hell out, broke loose on the surface. Some sort of an encounter with some sort of uh, extraterrestrial race on the moon. They never came back, and that's why we've never been back. Have you seen Apollo 18, and, and what are your thoughts on that? And I'll get your feedback on that as well, Victor, because I think you've seen it. I have not. Yeah, yeah I've seen Apollo 18. It's a pretty bad film, um, but uh, it's very interesting in, you know, in, in terms of my own research. Um, not least of all because of its viral marketing campaign, um, which fooled a lot of people, uh, which is quite worrying. Um, uh, you know, in, in recent years, you've seen a trend um, emerge in Hollywood um, where you have filmmakers seeking actively to dissolve the boundaries between UFO fact and fantasy um, through the utilization of these kind of you know, verite filmmaking techniques and, and also willfully deceptive uh, viral marketing campaigns. And you know, uh, so you've got the fourth kind, for example, which is a very, um, a very uh, good example of this, um, but, uh, which which use you know, real news reports and, and they fake the Universal Studios created fake news clippings which were reported to be real. Uh, ultimately, it was sued for it. So they wanted to blur fact and fantasy um, to make people curious and not to know where the you know the line the line lies between fact and uh, between fact and fantasy. Um, same was the case with Apollo 18, of course has roots in reality. Um, but what happened was you had, um, in the months preceding the film's release, you had a website, a pop-up called lunatruth.com. And uh, this was a vir- this is actually a viral marketing website for the Apollo 18 movie, but people thought that it was a real website um, that you know contained lots of classified material. And it does look like that. It's a very authentic website. Um, there's a whole bunch of documentation on, on that site, on lunatruth.com. Uh, uh, documents on there that are fake and created specifically to virally promote the film. Um, the, but, you know, as I say, sites like this are becoming massively popular with Hollywood filmmakers nowadays. But at the same time, on that same website, you've also got real documents, um, the ones with the real documents taken from government archives, and they're put side by side with fake ones, and it's impossible to tell the difference. So you are literally having the direct learning of fact and fantasy um, to create uh, a new narrative, really. So if if that's the case, then let's just suppose that this 
uh, and I've watched the movie, and it's really a very, very disturbing movie. If anyone wants to to watch it, but the the actual website Lunar Truth is even even more disturbing. So l- let's assume that this thing was done, and it was sponsored with X number of dollars to do whatever it did, both with the movie and the website. Um, what motivation would anyone have, whoever, uh, uh, and I've looked at who, who, who produced the movie, but let's assume that you know, uh, who, those people are, are, are unnamed. What motivation would there be behind a, them developing a movie of that uh, prescriptive nature? And it's a very, very powerful movie uh, on one count. And then to develop a website on top of that with very, very sophisticated-looking documents. Who, in whose interest would it be to develop both of those memes, both the movie and the website, to conjure up a certain perception about what the extraterrestrial issue might be all about? In whose interest would that be? Well, to be honest, um, I... I really don't see anything suspicious behind Apollo 18. I don't see this as a as a as a. As a you really um, don't. You really don't. Seriously. Don't. Really don't. So, so um, I, but, but I can only go. I I can only go. You know, it's tempting to be able to look at every single Hollywood film about the UFO issue and see see evidence. You know, see see the fingerprints of the CIA or something because you know it touches on this subject or that subject in this way or that way. And if you took that approach, then everything would be a conspiracy. And I, I can only go on evidence that's that, you know i have to see at least some evidence uh, in the film's production history to suggest that there is some kind of collaboration or or, or you know um hidden hand and i honestly don't see that with apollo 18 i see a small independent film it's very clever very sophisticated in its viral approach and has a very cool idea that taps into conspiracy culture um and uh, which is essentially pop culture now. But um, but, but Robbie, and, uh, pe- Robbie, people don't go out and spend money like that to lose it. I mean, these people spent a lot of money to put that movie together. It's a very very sophisticated movie. And then on top of that, the website. People don't go out and spend money like that just for the hell of it. There's somebody has to be you know behind them to proffer that kind of information with the dollars that, that have been behind it. I'm not suggesting that it is in fact a conspiracy, but who would put up money? To, to lose money to begin with. It doesn't make any sense. Well, I believe, and I have to double-check this. Um, oh, oh it's, there we go. It's, um, it's uh, Dimension. Uh, Apollo 18 was produced by Dimension Films. Dimension Films actually used to be owned by Disney, but is no longer owned by Disney. So I think it's, it, was, it was the Weinstein Brothers. Um, uh, and so, it was, sorry, it was, I think it was Harvey Weinstein who owned um, um uh, Dimension Films, but it, it, it's no longer owned by Disney. But it's an independent. But basically, Dimension Films is an independent, right. very successful, very successful production company with a long history of successful productions. So we're not talking about you know a, a tiny, a tiny little amateur production company here. This is a film that did have. Um, it was a, it was a low budget film. It was a low budget film, um, and they were hoping to basically replicate success of things like the Blair Witch Project, where you have a, a film that's produced uh, with uh, you know, small means uh, with, with a, a, a cast of unknowns. Uh, you produce it for a very small amount of money. You use a very sophisticated viral marketing campaign, as with the Blair Witch Project, for example, and the fourth kind is another example of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and you hope that it catches on virally and explodes um, and, and just breaks in the cash. Sometimes it works, as it did with the Blair Witch Project. It also was successful with the fourth kind, which was which was a box office success. Apollo 18, it didn't work. 
Um, it was one of those ones where you know they they had no reason to believe that it wouldn't work, and they hoped that it would that it would uh, be part of that trend. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, it didn't work, and they lost money on that film. But you know that's the way it works. You you, you invest in the in a in, you know in, in the in the marketing in the hope that you it's going to pay off, especially if your film has no major actors to sell it. You know this isn't a film where you can say Apollo 18, come and see George Clooney in Apollo 18. Or, Okay, so let, so then let me take you back then to 1952 with uh, the day the Earth stood still. Do you think the CIA at the time took that same kind of gamble? I don't think it's, the, the CIA wouldn't have funded the day the Earth stood still. There's a distinction to be made. So, 20th Century Fox funded the day the Earth stood still. The 20th Century Fox was massive and still is, I'm sorry, the same, but was a massive, massive film studio. They don't need to go to the CIA and say, CIA, please give us some money to make a film. <laughs> what happens is the CIA. They subtly influence the script, for example, or you know uh, they will suggest ideas through the through the through a Hollywood chain, um, and and it will start start to filter in or percolate percolate into the film. Um, but there's no money needs to be put up by the CIA. The government doesn't fund UFO movies. Of course, yes, I understand that. But they you think, subtly, but you think the message though that would have been in the in the in their experiment to put this in, in place the way 20th Century Fox did do it. Do you think the intent? Was similar to, uh, to. I'm trying to connect the dots here. Okay, Robbie. Yeah, no, I think. Yeah. Well, I think. Well, the the day the Earth stood still, 1951, was was really an exceptional case. I don't think we've ever seen anything like quite like it since, to be honest, on that scale. And it was it was I think first time you saw the CIA uh, and perhaps other government branches dip their toe in this issue in terms of in terms of the entertainment industry. They wanted to see what they could do. Um, and what effect it might have. Of course, um, yeah. Robbie, we've just got about so, two minutes. Let, let, let's just take a couple of minutes here and talk about what's coming up uh, later this year, 2013, maybe next year. Do you have your eye on a, on, a, on a couple of films that you suspect have CIA, naval intelligence fingerprints all over it, and, and you're, you're really sort of keen to find out what that meme is going to be all about? <clears throat> There's one film um, which I'm very interested to see uh, if it eventually comes to the box office. This is something that, that's been rumoured to, I mean, it, it, it's been on the slate for, for a couple of years now, but it's, it's been delayed. We've had different directors and writers assigned to it. This is a film called Umbra, U-M-B-R-A, uh, which is a uh, Latin word meaning the darkest part of the shadow. And Umbra is also uh, an intelligence um, code word used in the National Security Agency. Um, it's a former, it's a top secret clearance. It's an above top secret clearance. So you've got top secret umber, for example. And there are UFO documentation uh, documents um, which are labeled with top secret umber. Um, so this is this is a film that's actually about the alleged Dulce facility in New Mexico. Yes. Um, and so this is this is going to be very, very interesting. Um, it's been rewritten. Um, it's been assigned a new director, two new directors, in fact. Um, so it's a film that's clearly having production troubles, um, and it's a film that's going to be any look, any film that's that's going to try and put on screen um, that's going to depict the government as being engaged in horrific biogenetic research in a top secret underground facility dealing with the issue of aliens. Uh, I've read the script, by the way. Um, it, it was leaked online couple of years ago and you can read it um, on, again on my website um, uh, the script has been rewritten however so it would be interesting to see what happens with this but it is a film that taps very directly 
into the, the story of Phil Schneider um, and, and his, his testimony regarding the Dulce facility. It's a film that involves collaboration between, uh, the, 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 the narrative involves collaboration between the government and hostile extraterrestrials and uh, experimentation on humans. It's going to be very, very dark and sinister. Schneider so, was a, a whistleblower who talked about alien battles at Dulce and was and, and later died under mysterious circumstances or was murdered, correct? Correct, correct. And uh, the same kind of thing plays out in Umber. So that's going to be a very interesting film. That's supposed to be, it was supposed to be released in 2012, then it was supposed to be released in 2013, and now it's uh, we're expecting it probably in about 2014. It'll be very interesting to see whether or not that gets any government assistance. Indeed. Listen, Robbie, uh, great having you on again. We'll uh, we'll do it again soon. Silverscreensaucers.com, and uh, give us a, an update, the status of your uh, upcoming book. Oh, it's getting there. <laughs> it's um, not quick enough, but it's getting there. It's I'm every day working on it. Um, uh, it's it's I'm hoping to have it finished by the end of this year. I'm going to hold you to that. Okay. Well, <laughs> we'll have you back on. Thank you. Thank you for this, Robbie. Oh, no problem. It's been great. Thanks for having me on the show again. Robbie Graham, SilverScreenSaucers.com. Victor, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Uh, it's always like, spending an hour with you on this, and we just get to realize this problem is uh, is bigger than we can ever imagine. Well, when uh, next we meet, we'll probably be over at the, uh, the luxurious uh, confines of our new facility uh, just west from here, and uh, uh, looking forward to uh, sitting down with you again. Of course, it'll be a pleasure. All right, next week, mark this one down. Gerald Salente, one of the top trends forecasters in the world. We'll talk about, uh, well, everything from uh, the coming economic collapse and uh, all wonderful sunny topics like that. Gerald Salente. Tim Spreen, thanks as always. And uh, in the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing hidden that won't be made known, nothing revealed, nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. Would you hear in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops, move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.